You're listening to CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, and this is Speaking for Change. I'm Kike Roach. For the past six years, I've been the Unifor National Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Toronto Metropolitan University. The mandate of the chair is to create a hub of interaction between social justice activists and the academic community. In 2011, Winnie Ng and Salman Khan started Social Justice Week, and it's since continued under my stewardship. Every year, it has brought together TMU students, staff, faculty, and the broader community to raise awareness and inspire action. Over the years, we've hosted dozens of notable speakers, centered essential conversations, and encouraged and supported countless students to become more engaged in their communities. The fall of 2022 marked the final edition of Social Justice Week. A dozen years of events has left us a valuable archive of recordings touching on issues that remain extremely relevant today. So we wanted to share some of them with you. Speaking for Change is a weekly series of recordings from the past decade-plus of Social Justice Week, a space to reflect on and celebrate the work of progressive changemakers. This episode features Robin Maynard's keynote talk, Towards 21st Century Black Liberation, from Social Justice Week 2018. Robin Maynard is the author of Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, a critically acclaimed national bestseller. Maynard has a long history of involvement in grassroots movements against racial profiling, police violence, detention, and deportation. Building on Policing Black Lives, Robin Maynard provides an overview of state-sanctioned surveillance, criminalization, and punishment of black lives in Canada. Drawing on examples from Canada's immigration, child welfare, and criminal justice systems, the event explored the still-living legacy of slavery across multiple Canadian institutions. It was part of the Mandela ECI Lecture Series, a unique series of keynote talks by renowned Black public intellectuals and artists. The series was presented by Social Justice Week in collaboration with TMU's Office for Equity and Community Inclusion. So, particularly given the theme of the the power we have. I think there is a lot of power in this room. And I think about something that I'm going to, that we all really need to come back to in the light of the recent election, the show of the past two years, the past 10 years, the past 500 years, focusing on the power that we have is a life giving and a life saving necessity for all of us. So before jumping into what I mean by 21st century black liberation, I'd like to speak to the present moment. We often hear the statements make racists afraid again. And I think this is a very important goal, the goal to make racism intolerable, to make it abhorrent, to make it embarrassing, in short, to strip away its appeal and its promises, to expose it for the ugliness that it is, for there to be consequences for racist acts and behaviors, I think is something that we're all aiming to return to. You cannot not mention Donald Trump if you're talking about the president thinking to the most powerful men in the world being a repeat sexual offender who has locked thousands of children in cells across the United States with still significant popular support. It speaks to a particular moment that we are in. But well beyond the United States, where so much focus is so frequently leveled, especially in this country, I think that we can acknowledge that in this city, in this province, in this country, the euphemisms are largely gone, and racists can often express openly or with very thin reference 
uh, political aspirations for those who afford, for example, a white ethno state, where now up for debate is the non-existence, the fertile denial of trans and gender non-conforming people. Somebody won third place for mayor who has openly referenced the so-called Jewish question and actively supported Nazis. This is something that we need to recognize as a very real part of our moment. I'm also thinking about the election. I've only lived in Toronto for a few months, but I've already noticed the tendency to not look at what's happening in the other province, but it's very significant that in Quebec, the CAC, the Coalition Avenir de Quebec, was recently elected, partially campaigning on reducing immigration quotas and bringing in integration testing for migrants who could therefore not become citizens. They do not pass the test. From the so-called center to the right, we have John Tory call it referring to black people as sewer rats, a city councillor referring to black people as cockroaches. So we need to realize that people are not playing and they're not hiding anymore. I think the best way to really frame it, if you want to encompass what's happening right now, is a white lash in which many have taken off their votes, but all have not. From Charlottesville to the Proud Boys, two elected officials, it's no longer politically unacceptable, if it ever really was, for white people to suggest that they are being overrun, that there's a threat to traditional values and traditional demographics. But what we really know is that this is a barely veiled referent to our very presence here. So it does appear in some ways that racists are no longer at this moment fear reprimand, fear consequence, and that our humanity as black people, queer people, disabled people, etc. is up for debate. Now, I think that it's important to remember that the crisis being perceived by those who are part of this white lash at this moment is not only because of our presence. Although there are more of us here than there have been historically, we know that black people on this continent were very desirable when we were property, right? It's a crisis of a perceived threat of racial leveling of black and indigenous and Arab and Muslims people and the, what we have demanding in terms of justice in a so-called free society. Although we know that it's not a threat to white people, but a looming threat that we pose to the end of a 500 year period of unearned and violently enforced white dominance, that what's occurring now, we need to understand as a response to the successes of the last few generations of social movement, of decolonization of the red and black power movements. We're seeing a response to the successes of our ancestors and of those of us who are still fighting today. In some sense, what is becoming clear is that powerful factions in our society are finally admitting publicly, admitting freely that freedom and equality of countries like Canada and the United States was never intended to be for those who are not racialized white, for those who do not need to be fit into the gender divide. What is happening around us with the global rise of white nationalist movements, including in Brazil, more broadly, should be alarming. But I think if we really want to ground ourselves in the present conditions, if we want to engage in future-driven political work, it's necessary that we actually have analysis of both our history and our present that I think will move us away from a sort of Trump amnesia that makes us think that suddenly there's racism and that it's terrible and that we must act but erases so much of what has come before. Globally, the right-leaning, the white-leaning shift is alarming, but it's not new. It follows a political logics of a crisis that's 500 years in the making. And I'm speaking about the twin apocalypses at the heart of what we now call the Americas. The kidnapping of 15 million Africans of 2 million dead at the bottom of the ocean. The genocide of indigenous inhabitants and this ongoing structure of settler colonialism. I'm speaking of the indentured labor of Chinese workers, the internment of Japanese Canadians. In short, I'm speaking to five centuries of entrenched white supremacist practices that have cemented a global order 
hierarchized by race and gender, based on the pillage of resources of Africa, Caribbean, and South and Central America. Despite having affected important successes in the generations, we're living in a present that is very much inhabited by the past. If this level of racist and sexist and misogynist speech acts are new, of this level of acceptability is new, in North America and Europe, the nature of the global economy, the nature of the structures of our society have been fundamentally structured around racism long before the return of these acceptable acts. Further, a lot of what's happening here now is not unfamiliar to other parts of the world. The economic crises, the privatization and debt, the unaffordability, the unfunding of public services that we're seeing today in Canada and the United States have been part of an international policy that has been enacted, enacted on black and brown populations since they dared decolonize the places that they lived. Through social adjustments programs, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, we've seen this before. It has just not been done in the countries that are historically where the inheritors of the stolen wealth reside. Now, I'm seeing all of this not to make us depressed, um, because I think one can, you know, saying you can't be depressed, you can be if you so choose. What I'm getting at is that what I'm really trying to do, though, is to ground us in our historical context to say that, yes, we have to fight, but we've also been fighting for a long, long time. And we have to push back against the newly emboldened front of white supremacist activities. But, and we should not minimize the existential threat that this does pose to our collective safety. But we need to remember that when we are fighting back, we are fighting not just to go back to Obama, which, let me remind you, was the president when the Black Lives Matter movement was born. We're fighting not to go back to the pretense of tolerating the people of multiple races and ethnic backgrounds and genders both while still having people being gunned, while black people are still being gunned down on the street by police. This is not the back of two years ago. This is not the back of pre-Trump or the pre-Ford that we want to go back to. We're actually fighting and have been fighting for generations for something new, for something different. And that's what I really wanted to ground us in today. Although I'm going to be speaking about many kinds of state violence that I do believe we need to understand to fight for the future that we want. I think we need to remember exactly that, this long-standing structural world that we, that we must refuse and that we must actually build something entirely new that we need to break from these long-standing trajectories. So let the amnesia of this very present crisis of the white lash forget us to allow us to forget um, what has come before and what we were living through before and what generations before us were fighting against. I think there's no important time on the present to look toward creating new possibilities in our present moment and to aim to intervene in the future. We too need to ground ourselves in building a new future. So this talk is called 21st Century Black Liberation. And if there could be a subtitle, it would be expanding the terrain of our emancipatory struggle. And I want to open what I think will be the main anchor of the rest of this talk by reading part of a statement by the Kombahi River Collective. This may be familiar to you, I hope so. But I think it's very important and I think you'll see why as I speak about really the next issues. If black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression. There's a reason that this statement is familiar, if, even if it's not known, perhaps by heart. Um, it's an excerpt of a collaboratively written piece called A Black Feminist Statement, published in 1979 by a collective of black lesbian feminists, including Barbara Smith, Audre Lorde. They were part of a broader collective that fought police brutality, fought police violence, 
and, you know, modern segregation, but they also insisted that our struggle had to be so much more than that. It insisted that our struggle take on gendered oppression and take on homophobia and um, really broaden what it means to fight for freedom. There's a reason that this statement is still so widely used after 40 years after its initial publication, because it captures, I think, a world of complex and overlapping oppressions and also a world of liberatory possibilities. So really, I think we'll begin to see how I'm using this to ground what it means for us to look at the state-sanctioned violence in Canada for 400 years and what it means to try to address that and to break with that. I believe that this statement speaks to the importance of developing a political consciousness, a critical consciousness of the world around it. It urges us to look to the material conditions faced by Black people, specifically Black women, specifically poor Black women in North America and worldwide to better comprehend the world that we're facing, the world that we're trying to transform, and to allow us to map a broader vision of transformation than certain more narrow versions of Black power movements had before. Not just for Black women's liberation, but for Black liberation and for human liberation, more broadly. In the 1980s, Audre Lorde wrote something that remains today as true as ever. We are Black people living in a time when the consciousness of our intended slaughter is all around us. And I think she's using that in a twofold way, talking as well to the accordance of political consciousness of what so many, you know, activists and community, um, community building flat peoples have been doing before, just passing on that consciousness so we're better able to take on the systems that are continuing to really wrong us of freedom. It's important to understand anti-black racism as not uniquely American, and not even as Canada too, but as part of a global phenomenon, something that has been global long past the abolition of the slave trade, which of course was a global project. Worldwide, black people are mobilizing against a lot at this moment, against the pending deportation of the Windrush generation in the United Kingdom, against not only police violence in North America, but the 60,000 Haitians to be expelled from this continent. There are thousands of Nigerian women still held in Italian prisons for prostitution-related offenses, and of course, I think all of us are deeply saddened and horrified by our um, by the Africans that are now dying continually in the Mediterranean Sea, trying to reach Europe, which is being defended by Frontex. Two years before the eruption of the Black Lives Matter movement, 50 to 60,000 black women took to the streets in Brazil to protest the state sanctioned violence against black women, as well as ongoing police impunity. So despite its global realities, Canadians are trained to identify anti-Black racism as something that occurs in another place, the United States, or another time, the past. Um, and I mean that very literally in terms of trains. I mean universities very much like this one. I mean public schooling. I mean education more broadly. I mean the media that we continue to pass on this message so well and so frequently that the conditions of Black people in this country so frequently remain erased. The present situation that is here and now, as well as the past, is continually displaced and disavowed. And that's despite the amazing work that's happening even here on this campus. I'm so proud to have the Black Liberation Collective present here. I think that that's an extremely important initiative. But what's happening in these schools and in these universities is not accidental. It needs to be understood as a concerted and ongoing effort to erase Black experiences from the public realm. And it's an absolute necessity that this lack of awareness and consciousness in the broader public needs to be interrupted. And I think many of us here are committed to that interruption. A lack of knowledge is often described as a kind of innocence. 
right? I think that the lack of knowledge that we're looking to today, though, is one that is willful. And in the context of structural harm, that kind of innocence means very little. So James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time spoke to this very well. And he said, they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds and thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. It is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. I think that remains as relevant as it does today, particularly in a context in which literally every generation of activists is trying, of black activists, of black community members, of families, is trying to insert a history that we know is there, that has always been there, and coming up against the same erasure, being promised a study, as if that will finally prove something that we have been insisting is there for hundreds of years. I spoke a few minutes ago about how despite the intensified and perhaps more vocal racism that we're seeing today, that we don't respond only with condemnation to the white lash, to the audible expressions of racial hatred, transphobic hatred, more broadly, but that we fight it in all of its embodiments, that we don't allow ourselves to be distracted from the broader issues. Now, it's important for us to understand that racism has been structured into Canadian society since before Confederation. And while perhaps visible, racism itself is part of how this country has always functioned. Now, I'm not going to list a long list of statistics proving racism to you, but I want to ground us in just some, I think, some basic structural facts that are very important to understanding the conditions that we find ourselves in today. We can see that we know that in Canadian prisons, black communities face a rate of incarceration that is three times higher than those of uh, white prisoners. You see the rates of police stops, which I don't need to reiterate here in every city that has been studied. We see even more, uh, I think, horrifyingly, the rates of police killings and the disproportionate way that black communities continue to be killed um, at the hands of the police. If we think of Abdiaban Adi, Andrew Lokul, Bonnie Jean Gian, Gap Codiono, those are only a few recent names. Nicholas Gibbs, actually, who was just whose family was just out yesterday in Montreal, um, where several families of people uh, killed by the police, an organization that I was part of for a long time, were out protesting ongoing police impunity and racism in that country. We also know that in the immigration, because so many of us black people in Canada are not actually born here or have family members that were not born here, that something as simple as a traffic stop or a marijuana arrest does not end in the criminal justice system, but extends deeply into the immigration system where immigration detention is one of the primary sources of violence against many of our lives. In 2016 to 2017, over 6,000 migrants were detained, 439 for longer than three months, including 162 minors which is something that we often put, look at as a very American phenomenon, this idea of incarcerating children, right? This is to say that it is not just Trump, that this country's history of settler colonialism and slavery are living today across all the institutions that are public institutions that are funded by tax and money that are really Canadian institutions. It is essential that we remember this fact when we face the rising tide of white nationalism and white supremacy today. Lest we become too involved in the crisis of the present, the historical context really allows us to see more fully what we're up against. With policing black lives, it was important for me to show how ways of viewing and treating blackness that were created under the global transatlantic slave trade and through 200 years of slavery in Canada were not abolished when British colonies abolished the slave trade in 1834. Instead, widely held beliefs surrounding blackness that were forged under slavery that black people are pathological, more animal than human, less sentient, less able to feel pain, possessing a dangerous sexuality and criminal, have carried forward into the present day. We saw that state-sanctioned practices geared toward black subjugation 
that is, the racialized surveillance in public and private realms, arbitrary separation from family and kin relationships, vulnerability to arbitrary physical punishment and violence, captivity, and premature death can still be seen in municipal, provincial, and national policing agencies, jails, prisons, child welfare agencies, border regulation, social services, customs agents. Now, of course, we can speak of anti-Black racism as a much more broad phenomenon as we should. We know, for example, that you know, these new viral videos of random white community members calling the police on other black people, right? So we know that racialized surveillance and punishment is something that extends well into the rest of our society, that there's a broader complicity. But it's important for us to look at the state, I think, because as the legislator of the good and for the will of the people and the holder of the law of what is right and just um, and equal, supposedly, in this country, for those to be the same sources of harm against black communities says something very particular about what we are up against. I'm going to continue speaking about the importance of consciousness because how we conceive of racial injustice is going to be integral as to how we will be able to fight it. So that brings us to, I think, some of the more transformative potential of, to paraphrase, if black women could be free, then all of us could be free, which is me just reducing the essence a little bit more of the Kumbahi River collective statement. There exists today a very important gendered hierarchy of outrage in terms of what kinds of violence, what kinds of policing, what kinds of racism uh, that we can see, that we focus on, that have become central to, I think our movement central to, even our emotive response to things that occur. This isn't a level of perception, but it's very real still. I think that Black Lives Matter is seen, though is not doing this, but Black Lives Matter is seen as something that is about political, about police shootings of Black men. Me Too is seen as something that is just about the realities of white women. Now, the fact that the founder of Me Too routinely was a Black woman, the fact that Black Lives Matter is well fed by women and fights for Black women is real, but is erased within the public perception of these facts. And that's very much part of the ways that we know that race and gender continue to not be seen as coexisting, even though we are now 40 years after this statement by the Kumbahi River Collective. The racial and gendered hierarchy of outrage demands that we expand our frame of analysis and that we expand the terrain of freedom that we are actually fighting for. So if we think about something like the Starbucks incident, this is important. Um, you know, we have similar incidents in Canada, I think is important as we should have canonized the Starbucks incident that Abdi Rahman Abdi was killed in a cafe in which the police were called because he was supposedly um, harassing a white woman that was then beaten to death by a police officer, right? So that we have our own incidents here. But the Starbucks incident is one that canonized it, so I'm going to sort of use this as a way of thinking about, one way of thinking about the policing of black light. Now this incident sparked important discussions and all the ongoing reality that black life continues to be criminalized in public spaces. Of course, the mandatory bias training that was promised and probably delivered by Starbucks will probably have very little impact besides salvaging PR. I think it's important that this did generate really valuable discussions about the still living legacy of slavery in North America, black people's inability to move freely in the public realm. And this incident, of course, is only one of others. We know that uh, driving while black has been documented, you know, in Ottawa, Kingston, Ontario, that racial profiling more broadly is something that exists in every Canadian city where it has been measured, whether uh, in the United States, whether it's called stop and frisk or whether it's called carding or street checks in Canada. This is an important site of policing and of racialized violence. And it's one that's often represented as existing, you know, as targeting black men, black males. 
And while this is something that's very central to our struggle, and this is something that we really need to address fundamentally if we're going to create broader liberatory movements, it's important for us to expand the ways that we actually view policing and police violence. Now, of course, you could trace the genealogy of this kind of policing, this kind of public policing back to, and is often traced back to the sleep patrols, right? This is often the way we think about the genealogy of racialized surveillance. Um, and it's, it's a really important one where, for example, in Canada in 1789, a bill was passed in Nova Scotia to restrict the free movement of blacks and black people who are deemed disorderly could face seven years of indentureship. So this is very real, right? This is very much a part of our collective history that after abolition, Black men were targeted in specific ways seen as sexual threats to white women, including a statement by John D. McDonald that um, he was actually arguing for the need to maintain the death penalty because of, I quote, the frequency of rape committed by Negroes. There was a near lynching of a black man in Alberta in 1911 when he was falsely accused of assaulting a white teenage girl. We know that black people continue to be um, policed in this way, and that's why it's important for us to rescue, I think, this genealogy. But I think there have been very important feminist interventions into the notion that this is the primary and only source of policing and of racialized harm that Black communities experience. And I think that if we look to different genealogies, we see different ways that profiling and surveillance and racialized discipline continue to go on unseized. Portia Spillers talks about the ungendering of Black women. And I think that's something that speaks very well to the lack of protections afforded both rhetorically and actually to black women as compared to, to white women, who were, of course, the ones that were figured as actually women, right? So many historians, uh, Sarah Haley, Angela Davis, and Vera Ritchie have also pointed to the fact that black women were seen as sexually degenerate while subjected to all kinds of physical brutalities just as much as, as males were, right? So this idea that it was only you know black men that were being subject to violence is already one that is a myth and one that's important to go against. Chana Charmaine Nelson talks about how the surveillance of black women in public and private spaces was part of slavery, um, and that black women were seen as fair game for sexual violence as possible runaways as criminals. A black girl named Sarah Wood was convicted in 1789 for stealing condiments and whipped 39 times in a public setting in Nova Scotia. So this idea that somehow the, the slave patrols tracing the black male into the carding of the young black man in the present day is something that is already erasing the realities of, of black women as also being already subject to these same kinds of harm. But we can actually also see different iterations of this, right? If we look at the ways that black women's sexuality has been criminalized, Canada's history of criminalizing prostitution has targeted black women since its inception. If you look to the arrest records for prostitution offenses in the late 19th and early 20th century, you see that in Vancouver and Hamilton and Toronto, that in Vancouver, for example, almost 30% of arrests for morality charges were black women, um, which is major if you think about what the, popu the black population of Vancouver was at that time. In 1873, black women in Halifax were 3% of the population, but 40% of vagrancy charges. So this idea that black men cannot move freely through public space, but black women have been exempt from that is something that is a very important myth that we need to deconstruct. And this is something that persists into the present, particularly for trans black women who are targeted by the police for loitering, for sexual related charges. In my book, I talked to the stories that I've been recreating here of Audrey Smith, Stacey Bonds, Majisa Phillips, all brutalized by the police in public spaces as black activists, like the Black Action Defense Committee, for example, in the 1980s have been addressing uh, 
even if it's gone sort of unseen out of the public eye. And broadening the genealogies of racialized violence that we actually use to think about where racism has come from and where we should look for it today. Because this particular genealogy of racialized surveillance in public space from slave patrols to stop and frisk or carding from enslavement into prisons does not tell the story and is not all encompassing. It's long been a feminist tenet that the personal is political, but for black people, the public and private divide, particularly for black women, have always been a fiction. Patricia of Holland and Simone Brown and many other black feminist theorists have identified the white home and the domestic enslavement of black women as among the earliest sites of racialized surveillance and violence experienced by black peoples in the Americas, even though it's outside of the public visible realm. If you think to the ways that black women inside of white homes were being constantly subjected to monitoring and surveillance and really punitive kinds of control, um, including, you know, as a site of sexual and reproductive violence as well, where children are often sold away from their black mothers um, as punishments, right, in Nova Scotia, um, as well as, as more broadly. The so-called intimacy of the domestic slavery only obscures so much of the violence of what the perceived protections, I think, of proximity, and this away from the public eye, this idea of safety has never existed um, for black women. And I think that that's the way that we really need to carry forward when we think about where and how racial profiling takes place. Because I spoke to the fact that, yes, black women are targeted, for example, by police uh, in public for things like uh, sex work-related offenses. And this remains a very real reality to this day. But if we look to other state institutions that also have the power to survey and punish and confine and control, we realize that black women are often being subjected to violences that we're not seeing because we're not necessarily looking, right? If we're thinking about the young black teen in the alley, we're not necessarily thinking about the poor black mom in her apartment, right? So if we look back historically, even before the present, um, Maqueda Silvera did an incredible doc, uh, she wrote an incredible work uh, called Silenced, talking with working class Caribbean women about their lives as struggles and domestic workers in Canada. And through reading this book that was published in 1984, you realize that black women who, of course, throughout Canadian history have been subjugated in the domestic realm, like in Halifax up till the 90s, um, in 1940, 80% of black women were working as domestics. Um, but her work brings to light this intimate and private monitoring and control, the vulnerability to sexual violence that black Caribbean women were facing in the 1970s. That in some ways was addressed by the activism of who were called the Jamaican Seven at this time. If you read through this, uh, the pages of this text, you even see women discussing how even moving her hand in the wrong way as she picked up a cup for the white woman she was working for could be subject to punishment. And this is a kind of state-sanctioned surveillance and violence that has not often been centered in the kinds of struggles against racial profiling, at least not in the broader and more visible ones. Today we can see similar kinds of lack of the surveillance of black women in the private realm when we look at the criminalization of what is called welfare fraud. Um, and you have us, I think, familiar with Ontario in the 1990s. Knows that um, Somali women in particular became the target of a media and political sort of um, a witch hunt that was that was calling those leaking Somali women in particular to being these agents of welfare fraud, um, saying that they were taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from hardworking Canadians and sending it back to Somali warlords. It sounds ridiculous as it always does, but this is very much real and very much like driven enforced policies that we can see reflected in other parts of the country as well. This idea of welfare fraud as a crime has been described 
uh, by sociologists as the kind of survival or the criminalization of poverty, because what it entails is sometimes incorrectly filled out paperwork, or commonly it's like failing to declare outside income. We know everybody knows that social assistance has never been enough to live on, right? But the targeting of black women in this way has also allowed the government to set up such lines, um, subject to Bakum district monitoring that could even include surprise home visits and inspections, the questioning of their friends and their loved ones and their neighbors, and even the possible threat of arrest um, and criminal sentences. And if you think about the fact that police would actually require a warrant in a moment like this to enter somebody's home and to question them and to to really perpetuate this kind of violence, but this is not the case. With an infraction like this, you realize again that where we center who is being profiled and who is being policed is very skewed by a gender hierarchy in terms of where we look and what we see as violence and what we see as harm. We can see often the really similar reflections within realities in the child welfare system today, where we see the ongoing punitive interruption of familial relationships and the heightened surveillance of poor black mothers and indigenous mothers and other poor people as well. Just as the separation and removal of kin was part of a punishment regime in the maritime provinces under slavery, it remains one of the most harmful and damaging kinds of ways that you can punish not only a black mother, but the children and the entire black community. There are cases that have been documented by Okasi, for example, black moms who are being systematically reported just because they had HIV. Um, you read other reports of, you know, a black child that was called uh, had CAS called because they brought a roti to school, and I think a more famous example because it was in the Toronto Star. So I think what I'm trying to say is that there are many forms of racialized surveillance, control, and punishment that don't necessarily involve an arrest, but are fundamentally as violent, if not more so, than an unwanted stop in the streets. We speak so much about walking while black and driving while black, but we are not speaking about parenting while black, right? Despite these arbitrary impositions of strict measures, the enforced threat of child removal has not reached the newsworthiness of the black male arrested arbitrarily in a punk assembly. Again, not to displace the violence of that arrest, but to really invoke the fact that there are many kinds of policing that exist to, that are happening probably right now as we speak that are not the source of enough of the outrage that I think collectively moving towards a liberation, what we need to fight that we're not centering within our struggle. So when that's also important to this policing is that, and what I think really I'm going to get to why this brings us closer into a freedom-based struggle, but we understand that for black women also, the police, while very present in their lives, have not actually been a source of safety, right? But have been another source of violence. Um, the Black Women's Collective, for example, decried in one of the newspapers in the late 1980s that black women were being battered and the police were doing nothing about it. Just recently, um, Maria Altragacia Dorbal is a black woman in Montreal who was killed by her spouse after reporting repeatedly death threats against her and her kids, but was not given priority status. Barrington Walker did a long legal history of Ontario from 1858 to 1958 that showed that while it was our black men were heavily sanctioned for raping white women, the black women who were raped by white men were staged extremely lenient treatment and were raped by black men. So we see the systematic underprotection that tells us that policing despite its so-called war for security, has never really been solved for many communities. It's important that we not recreate these gaps in our ability to understanding both historical and contemporary realities of anti-Black racism. And what I think is really important here is not just to point out the gaps in state and Black women also, but to say that actually Black women's experiences expand the way, um, and also Black trans people and Black gender non oring people's experience expand the way that we think about policing of race at all. 
that actually rewrites how we understand policing itself and really then gives us something a lot broader from which to fight. That was author Robin Maynard speaking at the event Toward 21st Century Black Liberation from Social Justice Week 2018. Thanks for listening to Speaking for Change on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, a retrospective on Social Justice Week programming at Toronto Metropolitan University. Every week this semester, we're highlighting a talk or panel from the past 12 years of Social Justice Weeks. Tune in at the same time next week for a new episode. I'm your host, Kike Roach. Thanks for listening.